2: Okay, welcome to our uh, scramble. Uh, I should say that I was off for a few days. Uh, I had this idea that I was going to just putter around and get away from things. And what I learned was, if you're going to do that, you have to be like Jason Bourne. You have to like take your SIM card out and smash it in half with a hammer. And they've been sort of up-classifying those things with each you know, progressive movie. And now you have to smash the SIM card in half with a hammer, put one of the halves down a storm drain, and give the other half to like a pelican or something. Um, and then you have to do the same thing with your laptop and everything, or, or at, mi- at minimum air gap everything. You have to go Ed Snowden. Anyway, I didn't do that. Yeah. And I paid a price. I have one other thing that I have to tell you before we get going today, and that is uh, about a week ago, uh, Kyone Wolf, whom you often hear uh, kicking off this show, was involved in a car versus bike crash. She was uh, on the bike part of that. Uh, she's going to be fine. We're going to get her back. Uh, but it's uh, she did su- sustain significant injuries. It's going to be a little bit of a recuperation process. So uh, we, first of all, want you to know that she's thinking of you, and we probably want her to know that you're thinking of her. Uh, she would like you to know. i I've been in constant contact with, with her during this time, that if you are out on your bike, please do wear your helmet. If she had not been wearing a helmet, I would be making a much more somber annou- announcement to you right now. And then if you're the person driving the car, just you know, follow the rules of the road and understand that bicycles uh, also have to follow the rules of the road. Uh, and uh, treat treat bicycles like uh, another motor vehicle. Uh, Those are her two messages for you out there. Uh, But anyway, I'm laughing, but this was a little bit scary. She's going to be fine. We're going to get her back. might be two weeks, might be more. You may hear us struggling a little bit one way or another to kind of make up the difference between having her and not having her. It's a big difference. She does a lot of great things for us. So uh, anyway, when you hear that, that's what you're hearing. Um, All right, we're going to move on here. We're going to talk today. It just... We now know on Mondays that we're going to talk about the presidential campaign. We don't always know which thing we're going to talk about because it it moves and it changes so fast. So uh, that certainly is the case today. We're going to spend the first couple of segments talking with uh, Alex Eisenstadt, uh, who writes about politics for Politico. And then in the final segment not because of what happened to Coyone, but uh, just because it's uh, a matter of some interest. We are going to talk about driverless cars. There was not a driverless car involved in what I just told you about, but we're going to talk about driverless driverless cars. There was a horrible accident. It was actually in May that we just found out about it involving a driverless car. We'll tell you a little bit more about the state of the Technology, Law, and Psychology, uh, of all that, with Willow Ramis, uh, Senior Technology Writer at Slate.com, and a regular guest on this show. But we're going to get started now with uh, Alex Eisenstadt. Uh, First of all, welcome to our airwaves thanks for having me, and you know, I think we knew kind of what we were going to be talking about today yeah. as we made these arrangements, but then maybe we didn 't know exactly what yeah. we were going to be talking about. So I think we have to sort of have to start at the top here, Obviously, about ninety minutes ago, uh, FBI Director uh, James Comey came out, addressed the press the world. Uh, and, and said that uh, for the first 15 minutes kind of described uh, an environment of uh, extreme carelessness uh, involving the private email server of Hillary Clinton while she was secretary of state, uh, said that uh, uh, it was basically worse than what we've been told so far and there may be damage done. It's not possible to know how compromised some of this classified and or top secret information was. And then spent like the last three minutes saying, but on the other hand, there's yeah. probably not too much we can do about it.
1: Yeah, look, I mean, this was, people were sort of expecting a slap on the wrist. This was more than a slap on the wrist. I mean, this was a a pretty sharp rebuke uh, from the FBI, uh, saying that uh, Secretary Clinton was exceedingly careless when it came to uh, handling uh, classified information, uh, that at some point uh, in time, that the information she was transmitting via email uh, may have been uh, susceptible to access from from bad actors. Uh, But then... Uh, The director of the the FBI goes on to say that, look, we're not going to have any um, – we're not going to recommend any charges against her. And so, look, I mean, on on one level, uh, you could say the Clinton campaign is obviously happy uh, that this is behind them. On the other hand, is it really behind them? Because now what you have is uh, you have fodder for attacks from Republicans who are going to say that uh, this this is uh, evidence that she was exceedingly careless. And it's also sort of in Donald Trump's wheelhouse. He's now going to be uh, saying that, look, uh, this is an example of how the system is rigged that despite all this evidence that the FBI has gathered that uh, Secretary Clinton acted in a way that she should not have, uh, she's not facing any charges. And that's more evidence that somehow uh, the system is stacked uh, in favor uh, of her, in favor of of the administration and people in power. And that's the charge that that Donald Trump has been making uh, against Hillary Clinton to become sort of a central plank of his campaign.
2: Right. So um, actually, there were sort of in some ways three Distinct messages uh, from James Comey today one of two of them are the ones that we've said that a this was reckless it was careless it was irresponsible. Uh, there may have been some uh, damage. From it in ways that we will not be able to account for very easily. Uh, that's sort of number one. Number two, uh, based on everything we know about how you s- prosecute cases, uh, that uh, this doesn't really rise to that level. They they looked at uh, case law, they looked at uh, precedent, they looked they just didn't see any real basis uh, for. Uh, they said you know no reasonable no reasonable prosecutor w- would would bring this case. And then the third thing that he said, because of all the things that you just said, Alex, is this was a responsible investigation. It was an tainted investigation. I didn't tell anybody in any other government agency what I was going to say before I walked out here to say it. And nobody monkeyed around with us. I mean, that's that was a big part of his message that don't go looking at me as somebody who's now compromised because this is where I came out.
1: Yeah. Look, he knew uh, he saw what was coming. Uh, He knew Republicans were going to question uh, his decision and, and, and wanted to get out ahead of that. Uh, and look, I mean, this is, this is something that is going to be talked about for some time. Uh, but, but at the same time, uh, it's going to be hard to, hard to argue that he uh, somehow uh, acted unfairly in this, given uh, the strength of his statement, given uh, what, he, what he's accusing Clinton of doing.
2: Right. Let's hear a little bit of James Comey uh, making that point uh, about his office's integrity. Although the Department of Justice makes final decisions on matters like this, we are expressing to justice our view that no charges are appropriate in this case. I know there will be intense public debate in the wake of this recommendation, as there was throughout the investigation. What I can assure the American people is that this investigation was done honestly, competently, and independently. No outside influence of any kind was brought to bear. I know there were many opinions expressed by people who are not part of the investigation, including people in government, but none of that mattered to us. Opinions are irrelevant and they were all uninformed by insight into our investigation because we did our investigation the right way. So shut up. Uh, and, and you can hear him kind of thumping too he's really yeah. he's hitting something as he's saying this and and I, you know I think one thing we have to say about this Alex is that um, you know this campaign has been remarkable in so many different ways mm-hmm. and one of the ways it's remarkable is that one thing tends to drive out another very very quickly so we were maybe going to be talking about and maybe we still will for like 90 seconds about right. the so called Star of David uh, Trump tweet that had created quite a bit of controversy over the weekend except that this thing comes and, and you kind of know that this thing will sit out here for a day or two, and then something else will happen, Because, particularly because Donald Trump, whether he realizes it or not, tends to create an awful lot of news and maybe even news that drives out news that he could really kind of exploit and benefit from. And so the, the way that you deal with that phenomenon ordinarily is to make an ad or make a bunch of a, a campaign ads that do kind of a supercut of James Comey saying right. the most damning things he can possibly say. But so far, Trump has sort of been like this— human sandwich board for himself. And he's really shown a lot of uh, inclination to present his ideas in this other way.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I mean, you're making a great point about this campaign generally, which is that it's hard for any uh, story to gain traction for more than 48 hours. Now, the interesting thing about over the weekend is is that the story that really dominated uh, was, as you mentioned, the Star of David tweet, um, which really sucked up uh... the political news cycle for the entirety of the holiday weekend um, and now that's that's going not really be talked about as much because it has been supplanted by another event. And and you are gonna see look, I mean you're gonna see other uh storylines get traction this week. I mean, uh Donald Trump is supposedly gonna announce uh his list of speakers at the Republican convention tomorrow. Uh that is something that's gonna get a lot of attention. And then we're gonna move on to the VEEP stakes, right? I mean it's it, it's expected that Trump is gonna announce his VEEP selection uh next week. And then and then we're on to the convention. So I think you're making you're hitting on a critical point about how, uh, in this uh, information age, in this campaign that's largely driven by Twitter, that's driven by social media, uh, news stories have very short attention, span, uh, short shelf shelf lives.
2: Right. So, I mean, at the convention, once again, I'm sure that they will evoke Comey. Once they may have. Uh, edited sure. highlight reels or low light reel reels of Comey as they go through this they're going to try to preserve this, but it just, it does it, it well. It, in fact, we are alluding to this star of David tweet for the ten or eleven people left who don 't didn't learn about that over the weekend because they they wisely air gapped their computers. Um, we should explain this. This is a tweet that Donald Trump sent out attacking Hillary Clinton, but it wasn't original with him. he kind of sampled it I guess from from elsewhere. Um, and so, Alex, uh, just tell us a little bit more about this. This sort of came the, the tweet, the the image that he had, which involved sort of um, some words inside a red star that was shaped like the Star of David. It, David. It did come from some kind of alt right bulletin board, and, and also had been tweeted by somebody who one might assume would have some anti Semitic purpose in using the Star of David.
1: Right. So this is a tweet that that popped. Uh, I believe it was a Saturday morning. Uh, and uh, the Trump campaign tweeted it out. It basically called uh, – it had a, a star that was actually the shape of a star of David. Uh, that that It was on top of a bed of money next to an image of Hillary Clinton. It called Clinton, uh, quote, unquote, the most uh, corrupt uh, candidate ever. Uh, and so it was immediately uh, revealed uh, that this is this is uh taken from a as you mentioned taken from a a, a site that also uh, propagates you know, anti-semitic uh, messages. Now the Trump campaign towards the end of the week you know, was was silent about this uh, over the course of the week and finally last night uh, came out and said that it was take, it was lifted from uh Lifted from uh, a Twitter user that, uh, creates a lot of, uh, that creates a lot of that uh, creates a lot of anti-Clinton uh, messaging and I- images. Uh, but uh, look, I mean, the, the bottom line is, is that. Uh, there was a lot of back and forth over this. Uh, The Trump campaign insisting this was not uh, a Star of David, that it was just a regular star. A lot of folks pushing back saying, in fact, this is a Star of David. Uh, And so the whole incident really uh, demonstrated uh, that the, the Trump campaign's uh, ongoing struggle to to, to message issues uh, and 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 to uh, to to gain controversy at a time when 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 the entirety of the political conversation should be about uh, Hillary Clinton and. Uh, the issues surrounding her email server. Instead, uh, we spent most of the weekend talking about: uh, Is Donald Trump propagating anti-Semitic views?
2: Right, and the whole thing became: If it weren't so serious, it would be silly. Uh, you know, you heard the expression "squaring a circle." They circled the star. They took the star. They turned it into a red circle. Might be a little way coloring in the point, the space right. between the points. They did all this kind of idiocy went on. But you know, at the heart of it, the problem that lived at the heart of it was the question of what is Donald Trump's relationship with these far-right groups that are either white supremacists or anti-Semites or some combination. This just isn't the first time it came up. He had a lot of trouble publicly repudiating David Duke and there just seems to be some kind of conduit. Whether he's fully conscious of the meaning of that conduit or not, there seems to be some conduit where information from these or from this part of the political spectrum, the, the part of the p- political spectrum you usually address yeah. with a clothespin on your nose, uh, it, it seeps into his campaign with some regular Regularity. and I, I think it does make fair game you know to, to ask, well, how does it get, how does that keep happening? We would understand once or twice, but it seems to be with some regularity you're getting stuff from these groups and kind of pushing it up there more or less as your own.
1: right and and, and look, I mean this is another this is a conversation uh, that we're, we seem to have had now several times. Um, David Duke, um, you know that that came up earlier in this campaign. Uh, and, and you know, th- 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 there's no question that, that Trump is attracting, um, uh, you know, supporters who uh, seem to be on, on, on sort of sometimes the fringes of what's known as sort of the alt-right community. And he seems to be stimulating support uh, in, in a way that Republican candidates like Mitt Romney and, and, and John McCain really simply didn't really didn't seek out and seem to do. But it also shows that, you know, look, I mean, here's, here's a campaign that has kind of struggled to professionalize itself, right? You know, you, you've had, we keep on hearing that the Trump campaign uh, is going to be um, turning into what looks to be more like a more professionalized uh, traditional campaign. And yet they every time we hear that, something like this happens. Uh, and and it, it, it's one of the things that has sort of stimulated doubts among many in the Republican Party, about whether Donald Trump uh, has the infrastructure, has the campaign that one needs uh, in order to win.
2: So um, let's uh, swing back to Hillary Clinton and the problems that this presents for her. Uh, Then we'll take a break. And we also want to talk to Alex a little bit about the coming Republican convention and specifically about a movement that uh, he has written about within the Republican Party to essentially restructure it. We'll we'll come to that in a second. But so for Hillary Clinton, there's been a significant, I mean, one of the the canards or one of the criticisms generally directed at her is this vague sense that she's untrustworthy uh, and, and that she, you know, I mean, William Sapphire ages ago called her a congenital liar. That kind of idea has stuck. Um, And it seems to me that one of the problems she may have coming out of today is not so much all the other stuff that Comey said about carelessness, but that when people have a moment to think about it, the fact pattern that Comey laid out is different from the fact pattern that she laid out. One of the things that she's consistently said was that there wasn't really classified material contained in these emails. I'm sure people are now mapping Comey's comments versus what she said on the record about this. And to whatever degree it doesn't square, that could, at a much more granular level, get to be a problem for her
1: you know it it could and it's something that you can expect uh to show up in, in in republican ads um this this fall i mean you know you are you could have side by sides of what uh hillary clinton said versus what uh james comey said and, it, and to your point hillary clinton's biggest weakness in this election uh is that uh voters uh don't find her to be trustworthy and it's a problem for her. uh and and this is something that is simply going to exacerbate that problem
2: Right. And we also know that uh, Huma Abedin, her uh, key aide, had had sort of said something different uh, in her conversations with the FBI, uh, that she was worried about this as early as 2010, which, again, this is the person who sticks to her like glue, is who is as close to us as anybody gets, and is telling a slightly different story, like, no, I wasn't sanguine about this. I was worried about this. So, you know, to whatever degree she can't, uh, the Clinton can't even control the messages coming out of her own side. She's getting into the, almost the same kind of problem that trump is having a kind of mixed message uh, about certain aspects of the campaign
1: yeah and, and 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 look you know here's the thing which is that um this is an attack that you're going to hear at the republican convention uh, on hillary clinton again and again and again you're going to have four days of of of, uh, of of consecutive attacks on hillary clinton that are going to go uh, that that are going to center around whether or not uh, she is, is trustworthy. And, and you're going to have Republicans, uh, if this convention is, 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 you know, is, is conducted in a way that, that's effective, that is going to try to uh, chip away uh, at her trustworthiness, that's going to try to uh, highlight questions about whether uh, people can trust her.
2: Um, we're going to take a little break here. We're going to come back more with more of Alex Eisenstadt from Politico. Uh, he's been reporting on uh, kind of a splinter faction or a splinter movement within the Republican Party
0: nationally. President, 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 President. Donald Trump Donald, Donald, and Hillary Clinton.
2: All right. We're back with uh, Alex Eisenstadt, who covers the presidential campaign right now for Politico. So, Alex, um, you wrote last week uh, about a number of things leading into the Republican convention. It's coming up in a, in a few weeks. Um, one of them is something that hasn't been written about uh, much anywhere else. A guy named Ken Cuccinelli, who's got a proposal that would re- essentially reconfigure uh, the national uh, committee. Uh, explain. First, first of all, tell us who Ken Cuccinelli is and and then what he wants to do.
1: Sure. You know, next week, uh, starting next week, the week before uh, the Republican National Convention, you're going to have a series of uh, party meetings in which they're going to map out uh, the rules that are going to govern the party uh, in the years to come. And, you know, you are going to have a situation where uh, not not, not only is the party uh, going to decide um, the rules governing this convention and – who ultimately will end up being nominated, uh, which is almost certainly gonna end up being Donald Trump despite efforts to stop him. Uh, But you're gonna have uh, certain things that are gonna be discussed about the future of the party, how uh, party primaries are gonna be held, um, how the uh, party, how the RNC and the party generally is going to function, and so what, into this, into this, you are going to have a debate about, you know, about how the party should work, and there's a lot of disagreement in the party, especially at a time when many people in the GOP are unhappy about Donald Trump's rise and believe that uh, more should have been done to stop him, and a desire to uh, figure out how can we stop Donald Trump's in the future uh, from winning the nomination. So you take a guy uh, by the name of Ken Cuccinelli, he's the former. Attorney General of Virginia. He ran unsuccessfully for governor uh, for for governor in Virginia in 2013. He was a major supporter of Ted Cruz. And he's interested in, 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 in influencing uh, the rules of this convention. He's a veteran of, of, of party conventions in the past. He understands the ins and outs of conventions. And what he wants to do is he, wants, he is proposing something uh, that is really bold, which is to strip away uh, the power of future Republican uh, National Committee chairman. He believes that the power of the party should be decentralized away from the RNC and away from an all-powerful chairman. And what he wants to do is he wants to to bring power to what he describes as the grassroots of the party uh, it's something that he has been talking about, uh, proposing. He has not finalized any proposal, but it is something that he is talking about in the run-up to these rules committee meetings, which begin next week.
2: So, I mean, it, it's curious, too, because, I mean, some would look at the current situation. I mean, there certainly is a lot of dissatisfaction with Donald Trump as the nominee, a lot of how did we come to this, how did this? How could this happen? You've got uh, the two living Republican ex-presidents are not going to be attending the convention. So are a whole bunch of other—so are a lot of other important— Republicans not attending the convention. So, yeah, it's natural to say, well, how did we get here, and how could we change this so that this never happened again? But, you know, it seems, looking at it, as though the cure he's proposing is kind of the opposite of what the disease might call for. In other words, one of the ways that you got there was because there weren't enough powerful people who could stop it. I've talked to Republican political consultants, or I've sort of heard them talking, saying, boy, we should have superdelegates like the Democrats have. If we had more superdelegates, we might have been able to stop this, but it's hard to look at this situation and go, "Well, you need the power flowing down lower into the grassroots. To me, that looks like how they got into this mess in the first place.
1: Yeah, look, I mean, here's the problem, which is that there is uh, simply... There's, there's so much uh, debate within the party about how should the party function. It's, you don't have these debates going on within the Democratic Party. It's much more united. Whereas the Republican Party, uh, you have a lot of disagreement about how should things work moving forward, uh, who should have power, and, 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 and ultimately, uh, there's no, there are no easy solutions uh, to, to, to these kinds of questions. Now, now, here's the thing, which is that uh, Ken Cuccinelli's uh, proposal, should it end up going through, should it end up hitting the floor of the Rules Committee, it's not likely to pass. Uh, it is exceedingly unlikely. Uh, it, it, most people think that uh, diminishing the power of the r and chairman would only create more upheaval and more chaos in a party that's already racked by it.
2: So, and I mean, this proposal also is viewed by some more moderate Republicans as kind of a Trojan horse. That right. really, really what this is, is a bunch of strong conservatives. Cuccinelli comes out of the Cruz campaign. Morton Blackwell, who's a guy that you cite right. and sort of a longtime Republican uh, operative, goes back to the 1980s, is the kind of guy who, who thinks the Republicans would do better if they were more conservative. And right. I think moderates are looking at the, the thing that you wrote about saying, you know, this isn't about fixing the thing that got us to Trump. This is just using Trump as an excuse to try to, to try to wrest more power away from moderates or so-called elites and get it into the hands of Tea Party style conservatives.
1: Right. And and, and, and that's, it, it, that's why it, it's likely to fail. But it does highlight that, look, next week we are going to have a series of, of, of debates about the party, the future of the party. And there is going to be uh, there is going to be some tension uh, that's going to play out in this week leading up to the Republican National Convention.
2: Right. And so you've written about uh, sort of the constitution uh small c uh, of this national convention. And it seems as though, (laughs) I just read a few hours ago that Tom Brady isn't speaking or isn't endorsing uh, Trump after all, but it seems as though they've been looking around. I mean, they got in so much trouble four years ago when Clint Eastwood talked to that empty chair, you'd think that in some ways they'd be thinking, well, maybe just have experienced political people giving pretty conventional, in both senses of the word, political speeches. But uh, in fact, I mean, well, you've written about the sheer dearth of familiar faces or even not-so-familiar faces who were like governors and members of Congress.
1: Yeah. So, so one of the most interesting uh, things that's going to happen this week is, is Trump's going to roll out his list of, of speakers at the convention. And, you know, a lot of people have said that they don't want to speak. Uh, some people will. And, and you know, Scott Walker has come out that he's going to speak at the convention um and look i mean a speaking slot at the republican national convention used to be as for long for many years been uh has for many years been this very coveted thing it got you uh you know it got you a lot of face time uh, it got your name out in bright lights, a lot of attention uh and and it was something that people wanted now in the year of donald trump uh, it's something that people don't necessarily want as much a lot of people are saying they don't want it now it should be noted uh, that there are some people who are probably going to accept uh, speaking slots. They're going to say, look, I'm willing to go out there and take the risk of being tied to Donald Trump uh, because the bottom line is a speaking spot at the RNC is still something that uh, people really that is still something to be, to be wanted. It's something to be had. It's something that uh, gets you a lot of attention. So Scott Walker is one of those people who's going to come out and he's going to speak at the convention he announced today. And you're probably going to see some others, but you're also going to see a lot of people who are not going to have anything to do with this convention.
2: Right. And I would also guess there's going to be a lot of push and pull from the Trump people about this if, in fact, your goal as a speaker is to kind of get some meta- uh, message out that somehow or other beyond Trump or detaches the Republican movement as a whole from the specifics of Trump for the purposes of furthering down-ticket races or furthering your own credibility as a sane human being in a chaotic political world. If that's your plan, getting out there, I would imagine the Trump watchdogs would be pretty vigilant about that. Like, like well, no, there there's a limit to how much you can cut some of the ties to us.
1: Right, and 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 there's going to be a lot of attention paid to what do people actually say in their speeches. Do you spend your time talking about yourself, or do you spend your time talking about Donald Trump? Well, you take a look at Scott Walker. He hasn't had a lot of great things to say about Donald Trump generally. So there's so it's going to be interesting to see, you know, what does he end up saying, and does that end up causing uh, some tension with Donald Trump's team.
2: Um, One of the things that you mentioned in the previous segment, uh, Alex Eisenstadt, is the notion that one of the other stories that we're about to run into is the Trump Veep watch. Now, the conventional wisdom is always that. You know, there's a limited upside to any vice presidential pick. You know, the worst you can do or the best you can do is not hurt yourself. That McCain is an example of somebody who really hurt himself with uh, just a, a, a bad piece of judgment. But by and large, you don't get that much of a bump. You you, you can damage yourself a little bit. Nothing about the Trump candidacy is normal. Nothing of him about it follows the conventional rules. And I think everybody is looking at this wondering, well, th- he will send us some kind of signal about what kind of campaign he's running, yeah. if he, depending on who he picks. So there was some back and forth, some bantering at the Aspen uh, Institute over the weekend between uh, Biden and Newt Gingrich that kind of left me reading it, thinking, wow, Gingrich isn't out of consideration for this. I, I, what's, are there any current whispers or rumors about who's in, who's out?
1: Well, look, I mean, you, you look at the names who are supposedly in. Joni Ernst, uh, the Iowa senator, met with Trump over the weekend. Uh, Chris Christie is supposedly in. Not a huge surprise. He's been uh, close to Trump now for a while. Uh, Newt Gingrich is supposedly getting a look. Uh, getting a look. Mary Fallon, uh, the governor of Oklahoma. Um, you know, uh, Mike Pence, the governor of Indiana. All these people share one thing in common, though, which is that uh, they are open to Trump and they are willing uh, to serve as his vice president. And 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 a lot of people in the party simply aren't.
2: So yeah, I mean, I, I just thought it was sort of interesting that that Gingrich. I mean, one of the things that Trump has said, and Gingrich pointed it out at Aspen, was that he will need somebody who really understands Washington because he, Trump, doesn't understand Washington. Now, Joni Ernst, who's a senator, but she's a pretty— she's, the of course, famously the pig castration uh, senator, which would probably appeal to Trump. It kind of you know fits into right. the overall tenor and theme and earthiness uh, of his campaign. But I don't think she's maybe the kind of smooth operator that— if, if Trump really wants somebody to be kind of his Dick Cheney, at least at the level of kind of knowing how things work and who to pick up the phone and call and who gets this thing done— and stuff like that. I don't think that's Joni Ernst, I, I, but it might be Newt Gingrich.
1: Right, or, or Chris Christie, for that matter, which is why uh, those two names are, are sort of at the top of everyone's list. You know, Trump has been kind of honest in this, and he said that he needs someone who has some D.C. experience, someone who understands the way Congress works, who understands the ins and outs of government, which is something that he doesn't really uh, have. And so if you, if, you, if you need that, if that's what you're looking for, uh, maybe, maybe a Newt Gingrich is, is the way to go.
2: All right. Listen, Alex, it's been so great to talk to you. We hope you will come back. Uh, Great to have your knowledgeable uh, touch here on this uh, political campaign. Alex Eisenstadt writes about Politics for Politico. Thanks for being with us.
1: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
2: All right. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with Willow Ramis to tell us all about uh, self-driving cars. All right. We've come to the part where uh, Kyone Wolf usually gives everybody credit for doing things. And, of course, there's no Kyone Wolf. I should have uh, figured this out. Uh, So Jonathan McNichols on the board, where Kyone usually is, Greg Hill, as usual, is tweeting for us at WNPR Collin. You can uh, tweet back at him or you can start a conversation with Greg at WNPR Collin. This show was produced by Betsy Kaplan. I can't see who's on the phones over Betsy's head. Um, oh it's Adriana Smith and Olivia Piper are our interns today. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> and the uh, part of Bill Curry was played by Tom Brady. Uh, and tomorrow we're kind of we're going to sort of build on the conversation we just had. We're having a doing a show about kind of plumbing the question Do we have too much democracy or not enough? You could sort of look at um, the way that uh, people feel that their votes don't count as much uh, as they would like them to and think that there are ways in which there are incursions on our democracy or maybe even attempts to keep people from voting when they have a right. But you could also make the case, you know, we have a wide open process. It can lead to, I don't know, the nomination of a real demagogue or, you know, I mean, in a different country, it can cause you to leave the European Union. So too much democracy, not enough democracy. We'll talk about that. Uh, tomorrow. Right now we're going to talk to Will Arimus. Uh He is a technology writer for Slate uh, and he's one of the guys we really depend on to help us understand technology that we uh, don't understand. Uh, he's been uh, looking into, in particular, um, a, a car crash, a terrible car crash uh, in which a 40-year-old uh, former Navy SEAL uh, was killed by, uh, when his Tesla Model S crashed into the side of a truck while, at least allegedly, driving itself. Uh, Will, welcome to this conversation.
0: Thanks
2: for having me. So it seems as though, you know, there's that term meso-facts. There's sort of the thing you learn and then things change and you don't necessarily change your own understanding of it. So the meso-fact in my head is one of these days we're going to get driverless cars. But as this terrible accident that you wrote about points out, no, we already have driverless cars. There's no particular reason to suppose when you're on the road that there's a driverless car near you, but there's also no particular guarantee that there isn't.
0: Right. You know, the new technology always brings with it some difficulties in uh, semantics. And one of those has to do with the word driverless uh, or self driving, or in the case of the Tesla that was involved in a fatal crash. Uh, The term is autopilot. So you used the term driverless just now. It's Mm -hmm. an interesting term. It's reminiscent of horseless carriages a little bit, which was uh, obviously, you know, one of the early names for what became the automobile. Um, A driverless car, to me, I would, you know, if I were, if it were up to me to define that term, which Mm -hmm. it isn't, um, that would be a car that doesn't require a human driver to be involved at all. Right. Um, That is uh, – there's actually a classification system that was drawn up by NHTSA, the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration, um, and it divides levels of automation uh, from one to five. So level five automation would be fully driverless. It's a car that can get from point A to point B without any human intervention, it might not even have a brake or a steering wheel, uh, as Google has shown us with some of its prototypes for driverless cars in between uh, you know in between level one, which might be something like cruise control and level five, are several other levels of automation. So it's on a spectrum here and the Tesla um, that crashed uh, was had a mode called autopilot which Netsa would classify as level two automation. Basically, this car can, uh, it can accelerate, it can brake, it can steer under certain driving conditions, but a driver is expected to be behind the wheel at all times, ready to take over at a moment's notice should something go wrong. So it's not driverless in that sense. There has to be a driver there. And in fact, by, by law, you can't yet have a, a car on the highway that doesn't have a driver ready to take over at any time.
2: Right. Uh, Yeah, no, driverless is clearly a misnomer uh, for all of that. So... There's always a contrast, too, between what a product tells you about itself and what people's actual expectations of that product are, or a, a difference between how a product tells you how to use it and how people actually do use it. So, uh, you know, you can you can say Tesla can, or, or any of the 19 companies that are ha- at some stages right now uh, of self-driving or a- autopiloty kinds of cars can say, well, we really do expect you to keep one hand on the wheel at all time, and, and you're not doing... Engage in distracted driving and pay attention and all this kind of stuff. But then there are sort of, there's what the person using the product thinks about the product. And that seems to have maybe been the case with Joshua Brown, that he had a little bit more faith uh, in the, the autopilot aspect of his Tesla than maybe even Tesla would have suggested he have.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right. So Tesla will tell you, if you have a a car with autopilot mode, it will tell you that the purpose of this mode is the safety feature. You know, it's there there to help you out. It's there, you know, in case you, uh, you know, Elon Musk has pointed out that if someone were to fall asleep at the wheel, the driverless mode could take over and maybe save them from a a gruesome accident. Uh, You are expected to still be paying full attention at all times. Now, get behind the wheel of a car with autopilot, and what are you going to do? I mean, are you going to just keep driving as normal, or are you going to try out this exciting new technology by taking your hands off the wheel and seeing what it can do? And if you get used to using it on a regular basis to take over when you're on the highway, maybe you start to tune out even a little more than we already do when we're behind the wheel of a a car that you have to drive.
2: Right. So in tw- I think it was 2013, Google sort of they they got interested. What's the human factor here? What do what do people do when you tell them that the car is essentially robotic in nature? So they studied that, right? They put people on the road with cameras in the cars and they found all kinds of distracted behaviors up to and including what you mentioned, falling asleep. People would just fall asleep in a car that they presumably wouldn't have fallen asleep, fallen asleep in if, if they thought they were you know the primary driver of that car. That that when you tell people that the car is driving itself, no matter what else you tell them, a certain percentage of people are going to take a lot of liberties with that.
0: That's right. And I, I should note there are some features in place in, in Tesla cars with autopilot that are meant to keep you from just completely abdicating your responsibility as a driver. If you have your hands off the wheel uh, and and its sensors notice that and notice that they're not 100% confident in where you're going next or what needs to happen or they can't uh, tell whether the thing in front of you is... Uh, a car or a sign or that sort of thing, it will beep and tell you to put your hands back on the wheel. Um, and at some point, if you're not driving at all, it will actually, after it's warned you several times, it will actually slow down and, and, you know, come to a stop to avoid um, driving on its own. Now, that said, ever since Tesla's autopilot mode was released last year, people have been posting videos on YouTube of themselves driving hands-free. Um, in fact, Joshua Brown himself, the man who was involved in this in this fatal accident, the man who was killed in the crash, um, was uh, had posted YouTube videos that, that had gotten a lot of views showing off the Tesla autopilot mode's defensive driving ability. So he had one where his hands were off the wheel, a big truck started to come into his lane, and the car sort of slowed down and steered out of the way on its own. He was obviously very proud of that, um, it seemed like maybe he got a little too comfortable because um, there's now evidence to suggest that, in fact, when he he was involved in that fatal accident, um, he was maybe watching a movie on a portable DVD player in his car.
2: Right so it's a, by the way the automotive engineering term for this phenomenon is overtrust which i think uh,
0: pretty well sums it up that's a good so,
2: term yeah so oh yeah overtrust so um and, and so to to the point of that video i mean these th- these kinds of accounts are are not absolutely 100% reliable. What we have is the account of the truck driver uh, whose truck was uh, involved in the collision. And this collision was horrible. It uh, seems to have, I guess kind of almost ripped uh, the, the the Tesla car uh, uh, the top right off of it, and 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 ripped poor uh, Joshua Brown uh, pretty badly as well. But as as the interior of the car was coming exposed, and the sound from it was therefore more audible, the truck driver said that he was pretty sure that he heard. Um, a, a Harry Potter movie, and although I guess uh, you wrote that that this is not possible to do using like the dashboard features of the Tesla, it did appear as though there was at least there are reports that there was a DVD player in the car.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and and we may never know for sure exactly how much attention Joshua Brown was paying to the road. Um, what we do know that's really that that is um, that's interesting from the perspective of your your meso effect, as you put it, which is the bigger question of whether self-driving cars are the future. What we do know is that uh, not only did did the driver, Joshua Brown, fail to notice the big rig truck making a turn across traffic in front of him, but Tesla's autopilot system Failed to notice it, and it was because it failed to differentiate between the truck, which is apparently a white truck uh, in a brightly lit sky. So it's probably a very reflective surface. That's always been a problem for computer vision, um, which is the, the field of of computer science and and AI that involves teaching computers to see like humans do. Um, and so it, it mistakenly it mistakenly thought that maybe that was there was a sign overhead or something because the truck the trucks. Uh, uh, body was well off the ground it wasn 't low to the ground like a car would be, so it was confused. it did not recognize it as a truck. It drove on through thinking that the car could drive right under it that 's obviously a grievous mistake for the autopilot system to make and it 's the k- exact kind of mistake that we sort of would have all hoped had been worked out before we start trusting our lives with these with these systems and that 's exactly why you 're supposed to be paying full attention at all times because you know as as good as they are and as far as they have come in a few years' time, self-driving car systems are not yet perfect, Um, and in fact, Tesla's is significantly less sophisticated than the ones that Google has has pioneered, uh, which are in fact meant to be able to function without human intervention.
2: So th- then the question becomes, how safe does a, uh, a self-driving or autopilot or robotic car have to be in order to be safe enough? Uh, I think it was in your article that you, you said that uh, the Tesla car had, had actually, in terms of the, the, the number of miles traveled in aggregate by drivers uh, without an accident before this accident, far exceeded or at least substantially exceeded what regular Drivered cars uh, do, but the question would be, and you know, do these kinds of cars have to do better than that? And I guess the National Highway uh, uh, and Transportation Safety Association says yes. Administration says yes. They do. They have to be safer than you know than my uh, my Subaru Forester is.
0: Yeah, in fact, the administrator of NHTSA has has said, I don't know if this was off the cuff, I don't think it was a matter of policy, but he said he would like to see them be at least twice as safe as human drivers before we start trusting them. Um, it, it, It was actually Tesla and Elon Musk in their blog post about the crash where they pointed out that um Teslas have tri- has driven so far about 130 million miles on autopilot this is the first fatality um, that has that has occurred while it was on autopilot and on average there is a vehicle fatality on US roads about every 90 to to 100 million miles driven so so by that uh, statistic alone, autopilot uh, seems to be potentially safer. I think it's way too early to say. I mean, what if we have? What if there's another fatality involving autopilot tomorrow? Is it all of a sudden definitively less safe? I don't think so. I think we, you know, we need a larger sample size to de- to determine exactly how safe this is. Um, but uh, I think everybody would agree. I think Tesla would agree. Google would agree. That in order for self-driving cars to, to become our future, they need to be significantly safer than the baseline that we have today. I mean everyone agrees that the number of vehicle fatalities on US roads is is awful It's, it's horrific. Uh, and if automating vehicles is only going to match that terrible baseline, I don't think that's something people are going are going to go for.
2: It also raises some questions about a term that gets used a lot in the industries that you cover, Willa Remus, and that is the term beta, all right? These things are often referred to as beta models. They are effectively test models and, and no less uh, an expert in that term than Steve Wozniak has said. I mean, he owns one of these Teslas, but he says, you know, a beta feature a beta model of something shouldn't kill you. In other words, uh, that's not what – that shouldn't be the standard, that, that, that if something goes wrong, you lose your life, that there's something wrong with putting something out there as a beta that if, in fact, it doesn't work quite the way that it's supposed to work, which is kind of built into the assumption a little bit with beta, with beta testing, yeah, that th- right. the consequences yeah. would be so high.
0: Yeah, Tesla. So Tesla, before you can enable autopilot on your car, it makes you acknowledge that this is, uh, you know, it's a new technology and it's in a public beta phase so that you you are agreeing to that when you use it. Now, uh, you know, it's one thing to put a new version of, of Gmail in a public beta phase. Um, I think some people might see it differently when it comes to cars. Exactly as you said, I think a lot of the you'll see the major automakers are moving much more slowly when it comes to self-driving technology. I you could say that's because they just you know they don't have the the daring can-do Silicon Valley spirit. Uh, they're conservative or stuck in their ways, and so they've been slow to adopt the hot new thing. Um, I, I think they would say, you know, I, I think they certainly have the resources. They they probably could have implemented something like autopilot by now if they wanted to, but they are protective of their reputations. They're, they they have understood. They've been in this business a long time. They've understood how crucial safety is uh, to their business, and so they have moved more slowly, at, whereas Tesla has embodied that, that sort of Silicon Valley mentality of let's, you know, Let's get it out there. Facebook, Facebook's unofficial motto used to be "Move fast and break things." That's uh, you know, that's one thing. When it's a social network, maybe a little less palatable when the things that you're breaking are cars and people. Yeah, but will uh, I also feel as though
2: the message out of the audio auto industry is? And I hesitate to use the word insidious, but 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 at least sort of there's this latent message that we're getting in advertising that sort of backs up the notion that we should trust technology more and more. So uh, I was watching something last night and I saw a commercial, I think, for a Mazda. And it shows this couple with their brand new baby and they're just leaving the hospital with a brand new baby and they get the baby back in the car seat and the guy starts backing up and he, there's a car coming and the, and the Mazda tells him that it's coming. And then he gets out on the highway and there's a truck pull up on the left side view mirror. And the Mazda tells him. And the entire message of this commercial is... Like, I'm, I'm not even quite sure what I'm supposed to think. Like, this baby would be dead now if, you know, if the Mazda hadn't told them this stuff. Or you can think about other things on your ride home from the hospital with your new baby because this Mazda, it's not robotic, it's not autopilot, it's not self-driving. It's, not, it's just the way cars are equipped now with sensors that beep at you to tell you of oncoming hazards. But it seems to me the subliminal message of that commercial is, trust us more and more, we're going to keep you safe.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, clearly, t- uh, tech companies w- would would love you to trust them more and more. Um, and the trick is distinguishing which technology is worthy of your trust and which isn't. Um, and uh, with the Tesla autopilot technology, I think it's an open question. It's clearly impressive. Clearly, the technology has come a very long way. I mean, it was only it was only a little over a decade ago, I think, that the, that there was the first. DARPA Grand Challenge for self-driving cars for autonomous vehicles which at the time was something nobody had ever heard of or you know people didn't even imagine this was possible and in fact when the leading uh, computer scientists uh, in in the world got together and tried to do it it failed miserably i mean like you know the best car drove like a, a very short distance and crashed into a rock or something all the others had, had uh, already crashed before then uh, we've come an amazing distance the technology is improving rapidly i have no doubt the technology will continue to improve and i think you know if if it does succeed in in gaining the public's trust maybe eventually we will get to a safer world where cars either drive us entirely uh, on their own via software or where they have what you're talking about with those Mazda commercials which is something Toyota has been working on which is maybe we are still the driver but maybe the technology is there as a backstop maybe it intervenes when we do something wrong now, that's actually the inverse of what the Tesla autopilot system does. So, so with the Tesla system, autopilot is saying, look, we'll do the easy stuff. We'll take over on, you know, on sort of cruise control on the highway when everything's clearly lit and, and well marked. You just need to be there to step in for the hard stuff. Maybe that's not the ideal strategy. I mean, if you're not doing the easy stuff, are you really ready to step in for the hard stuff? So another approach is this idea of uh, you know, maybe the human still has to do all the easy stuff. We don't get any of the convenience benefits, but the computer is there to help with the hard stuff. You know, something comes out of nowhere, our reaction time might be slower than that of the software. Maybe it can save us.
2: Um, last a uh, quick question, Will Um, You know, you said before, what if there's another accident tomorrow? Well, one question that, that I think you, all of us have who followed the story is, well, if there's an accident tomorrow, how long will it take before we find out about it? This terrible accident involving Joshua Brown happened uh, in early May in an era where, I mean, if John Don King changes his hair products, you find out about it on Twitter 60 seconds later. So it's rather unusual that, that something like this sits below the radar. Um Any ideas about why it took so long
0: to find out about this? Well, you know, I don't think we know yet how much to blame Tesla, if at all, for that delay. So all indications are, so the crash happened on a Florida highway on May seventh. All indications are that Tesla immediately reported it to NHTSA, the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration. I'm getting really good at saying that. Yeah, you are. By the way, um, so uh, it, it, they reported it immediately, but then NHTSA it seems sat on it and and didn't release the information for quite a while. So so. It wasn't necessarily Tesla that was keeping it from the public. Maybe they were waiting for Nitsa to weigh in. On the That's other hand, I'm sure Tesla wanted to do its own investigation before they, they disclosed this publicly. So it was, it was certainly in their interest to have all their defenses ready and all their...
2: Willow Remus, I'm going to have to interrupt you. We're flat out of time right now. You are, as usual, uh, so informative about this. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks to everybody who helped out. We will talk to you tomorrow.
0: Listen to the dial